Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Luckily, I've always had this perspective that, you know, if it's not actual physical life or death, then it's not that bad. And there might be things that you can do about it and a lot can change and in five years time or even, you know, five days or five weeks. I guess I'm very privileged that I've had that perspective, but I would say that because we get so caught up in our own emotions that even when I do an exercise with someone, like they say like, you know, I'm going through this terrible situation and I can't cope with it. I say things like, well, what would you advise your sister if your sister was in that situation? Because that's still someone that you really care about, but you have one level of separation from being in the situation yourself. And, you know, I, I do also like that question, like, how much will this matter in five years time? Because you can take out about 50% of the things that people are worrying about with that question. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. So the manifestation part is is really that the, the extension of the, the vision board becoming an action board, which is that the vision board primes your brain to notice opportunities that may otherwise have passed you by. But the additional bit to that is that primes your brain to notice and grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by. So manifestation is about grasping opportunities and making, you know, the things that you dream of um, into a reality. You know, we talk about wanting this thing badly enough that, you know, we have intense emotion around it. Now, one of the things that I think is, is really fascinating about this is that that can also feel this like constant need of, of you know, the sense that you're lacking this thing that you want so badly. And it, I remember this very specifically because I thought it was such a relevant quote to creative work. Uh, A.R. Rahman, who's like this ridiculously famous Indian composer who's done every Bollywood movie under the sun. Mm. He had a documentary on Netflix, coincidentally called Harmony, which um, you know we'll talk about because I know you wrote a chapter about that. Uh, and one of the things that struck me that he said in that was that when you expect nothing, everything comes to you. And you know, I, I wondered what that was about, and what I realized was that it was it, what what I saw is like, wow, this is a way of mitigating that sort of desperate emotion for the thing that you say you want so badly. Yeah, absolutely. Because. Like you're taking me into the really, you know, the finer aspects of the book now, which is that if you want something desperately, then what you're putting out into the universe is desperation. And that's actually specifically why I 
created the phrase magnetic desire because it, to me, it's very positive. You know, it's magnetic. It brings things to you. And, um, you know, it's, it's a desire rather than a desperate need. That's very important. Um, so, you know, I have had, when I first started talking to my friends about vision boards and things, often people would use, and it's funny, we talked about language at the beginning, because I think language, as in the words that you choose, is super important. Um, you know, if people said like, oh, you know, I'm just desperate to meet someone because my biological clock's ticking or whatever, then I would say, well, then what you're asking for, what you're basically saying is des- desperate. And that, mm. that you can't use that kind of language. So that is, you know, it relates to the abundant thinking as well. So I think I love that phrase, if, if you expect nothing, everything happens. But to me, that's too passive. So yeah. understa- understanding how the brain works, I would think, you know, some people could be happy with that. But there are some things that I wish to achieve. There are some, you know, things that I wish to leave in the world, the impressions that I wish to have on people. And I'm simply not prepared to just um, say, well, I, you know, I won't think about it or do anything about it. And, and all of those things will happen. I, I don't believe that. And I also don't believe that he actually has Wait a minute. No, my guess is yeah. that's a philosophy, not a way of behaving because yeah, yeah. you look at his body of work and apparently I remember his biographer said that it, you, it would be impossible for you to go through everything that he's done. Even if you spend a year listening to nothing but his music, the guy has sold more albums than Britney Spears and Madonna combined. So I don't think it's a, you know, his work ethic isn't, you know, working like crazy, but I think it was more about detachment from, you know, what could happen because the guy didn't even start out with the intention of doing what he's doing. He apparently was writing jingles for commercials and somebody found out about him. Wow. Yeah. Um, I love that, you know, and I do think that I do love the idea of serendipity, but when people say, oh, that was such a coincidence, I kind of say, well, actually, (laughs) Um, if if you look at Aboriginal beliefs, so, you know, Aboriginal cultures everywhere. So in America and Australia, um, in India, um, the way that time is viewed uh, in the Judeo-Christianic world is very, um, past, present and future. In Aboriginal cultures, it's more like concentric circles. And so, they don't believe in coincidence or serendipity. They believe that it's because we view time in the wrong way. So when you think like, oh, isn't it amazing that I was just thinking about that yesterday and then you and I spoke about that today? Well, it's not amazing. It's because I've I've recalled that I was thinking about that yesterday because you and I are speaking about it now. If you and I didn't speak about it now, I'd just forget what I was thinking about yesterday. So that's that's a tiny example. You know, sometimes it's things like, Oh, Srini, I was thinking of you and then I bumped into you in LA. Like, what a mad coincidence. And uh-huh. that's explained more by these, um, you know, more esoteric beliefs about how time works. Um, and it also, something you said earlier reminded me of, um, have you read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse? Yeah, yeah I have. Um, I love the way, I didn't understand it when I first read it, but the way he said, I can fast, I can wait, and I can pray. And I thought, okay, that's not really that relevant to like the modern world. I'm not sure like what, you know, I can take away from that. But um, actually, when I practiced intermittent fasting, I really understood what that meant, which was that you feel hungry. That doesn't mean you have to grab something and eat immediately. You can wait and your hunger will pass. And to me, that has a huge analogy for emotions. So I can feel angry or I can feel sad. That doesn't mean I have to grab a bottle of wine or, you know, 
or like offload, download all my emotions onto someone else, I can, I can wait and I'm not going to feel that bad this time tomorrow. Um, and it related to something, it triggered something in my mind from something you said earlier, which I now can't remember, but I'm sure I'll remember when we listen to the podcast. Well, it's funny you say that because I think 90% of my writing when I write blog posts are informed by something that somebody said when I was talking to them mm. on the podcast. Um, oh. Well, I think that also makes a perfect segue to this idea of patience, which I, uh, it's funny because I feel that this is something that's an incredibly short supply in the world that we live in, especially when you see title book titles like Six Figures in Six Months. And uh, <laughs> you know, people basically look at these coaching programs or online courses and they get upset that they're not getting a result within months when you realize, wait a minute, the person who's built this thing has been working on it for years. Uh, yeah. And I think that the ability to go from idea to execution so rapidly has basically fueled impatience. And then you layer this sort of social media um, artificially contrived ecosystem with you know immediate feedback loops and meaningless attention metrics on top of it. Uh, and what you get is impatience. Uh, so I wonder from, you know, one, you know, the, the one of the, I think, big things that really stood out to me that you said is that onboarding of any new skill takes targeted effort and repetition. The feeling that you finally got it and turned a new habit into second nature is a sign that your brain pathways have reached critical mass. Uh, how, do we, how do we develop patience in a world that is um, moving at breakneck pace and encourages us to be impatient? Because I think back to something that I heard Naval Ravikant say, he said, patience, uh, you know, Impatience with action, patience with results. Yeah. I mean, it sort of relates back to the, if you expect nothing, everything comes to you, which is that you just can't, you know, have that desperate, impatient need for everything to happen right now. I mean, and I, I'm speaking as someone who's been guilty of being very impatient for most of my life. Um, and actually it was the practice of vision boards that made me really believe that that's not the right way to be. So I learned to kind of you know, in my 40s and after a lot of, of research and reflection. Um, so, well, let me start with, so, and, and also what I wanted to say was those, you know, that six figure sum in six months or whatever, or the people who win the lottery or suddenly, you know, or make, who just focus on making a lot of money and make it quite quickly or just make a lot of it, they usually mess it up, to be honest. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that patience is important is that you slowly adjust to a new way of being, a new life, a new amount of wealth. Because if you suddenly just get given, you know, $10 million, most people don't make good decisions with that money. So I think that's quite relevant. The patience thing is interesting because I would do these these action boards for the next calendar year, usually. And, you know, quite quickly, I was amazed that most of the things on the board would, would come true. And obviously it was in a very... You know, it was out in the open in my apartment. I would look at it every day. Um, I was going through a huge period of personal development and I was coaching. So you kind of have to, you know, walk the talk. And and more and more, you know, I sort of got to the point where I was like, be careful what you wish for, because this this stuff, you know, really works. And the more specific you are, it really works. And then there were a few things that they'd happen like after 18 months, not after a year or at the end of the next year. And I sort of became okay with that because I thought, well, you know, not everything has to happen in the next year. And I still, I see that the things do happen eventually. And I found that really comforting. I think one of the reasons we're impatient is that we think, well, if I don't have it now or it doesn't happen soon, it's never going to happen. But that's not actually a fact. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of what you've spoken about with data is that we get data gets derailed. Logic gets derailed by emotion. So it's kind of like, you know, I really wanted to, 
um, start up my own business this year or take my business to the next level this year, but it didn't happen or that event didn't work out. Um, it's, it's about understanding that maybe it will work out in the future. Maybe it will just take a bit longer than you thought. And, and it does relate to that. I can, I can wait, I can pray, I can fast kind of uh-huh. thing. Um, and so I had a funny example of that recently. Um, so a few, because my, my friend who's a professor of neuroscience, we did a sort of check-in at the end of 2015. And he said, you know, you said that this year on your vision board, you were going to find husband number two. And it's December, it's mid-December, and that hasn't happened. Um, so I said, yeah, that that's okay. Um, it'll happen. It'll happen next year. And so, uh, you know, both, both speaking to him and then just getting to the point where I thought, I've said I want to get married again, but I don't really because I'm too afraid. Um, I thought, okay, this time I'm really going to go for it. So I made my vision board in December 2015. And I found a pic- this big picture of an engagement ring in the Financial Times. So I put it top left on the vision board. And then I found this quote that I just liked. I don't normally put writing on my boards, but it said joy comes out of the blue. And in February 2016, so like just uh, six weeks later, I met my now husband on a plane in the sky, which is out of the blue. And, you know, later that year we were engaged. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did go back to my professor friend and say, well, you know, I have now found husband number two and it just tipped, you know, one month into the following, one one month and two days into the following year. So what do you think of that? And he was like, it's pretty, it's it's amazing, Tara. And he was sort of said, you know, that is, because he said when it got to the end of that year and he hadn't, I just thought, well, she's going to give up on that now. and then funnily enough that there was something about that ring. It wasn't that I specifically wanted that one. I was very happy with my engagement ring, but there's something about the color of a stone of, of the ring that was on my vision board from 20, for 2016 that this year I thought, um, you know, I'd really like a piece of jewelry in that color. And then, um, we we went to Australia. I went on business. My husband came with me and I read the news that, that these, you know, mines that produce stones of a certain color were closing down and I sort of said we have to get one really soon because the mine's closing down and there won't be any left and then the price is going to go up and and my husband was like oh I don't know you know let's have a look maybe when we go to Hong Kong and then in Hong Kong we didn't have a look and I thought he's just putting me off and he doesn't want me to have this item and I still keep my vision board from 2016 next to my bed because it's the one where my life really changed Uh and I got into bed one night and I said oh well, that, that stone is on my vision board from 2016. So I don't have to worry about it anymore because I know it's going to happen. It's just taking more time. And, um, two weeks later, he gifted me <laughs> the thing that I'd been <laughs> nagging him about for months. But you could say that I had definitely like suggested very strongly that yeah. that's what I wanted. But you know, I hadn't got it from 2016 to 2019. Yeah. Um, and that's a very material thing, but there are other things like that that are less tangible examples to give you yeah. that they've just happened the following year. So um, you know, if you have parents, a significant other, just put pictures up of whatever you want all over their house. <laughs> all over their house, you know, keep mentioning the word and like yeah. say, just say kind of, you know, make a sentence and then just insert the word pink for no particular reason and see what happens. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, so, you know, you go into this idea of the genesis of the source and you say we become heavily biased in favor of logic when it comes to making decisions and measuring success. This is often uh, at the expense of our deepest wants and needs. The key to maximizing the source is to allow each of the then the neurotransmitter pathways of the brain to fire up while maintaining a level of balance and counterbalance between them with constant feedback of information and allowing us to adjust the levels of our neurotransmitters and outputs from each pathway. The reason that struck me in particular is you're a business owner. If you don't look at your metrics, you're, you know, in, in my mind, metrics are this sort of double-edged sword, right? Um, Clayton Christensen wrote this beautiful book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And I thought about it. I was like, okay, am I going to measure my life in book sales and podcast downloads? Well, that's a really empty way to measure my life. Or am I going to measure it based on the number of uh, people who, you know, send me these really beautiful emails telling them how much a conversation has changed them? 
And yet at the same time, if you're running a business, metrics matter. So how do you balance those two things? Yeah, um, I want to answer this in a way that's useful to other people. So I think it's useful to talk more about when I was starting up the business, when metrics absolutely did really matter. I mean, but they mattered because I needed to make enough money to live. Um, a little bit like if you expect nothing, everything comes to you. I'm in the position now where my business, you know, has um, been going for 12 years. I get word of mouth referrals. Um, I have a buffer in terms of finance. So, you know, there's a lot of things, like philosophies, as you've said, that are easy to say when you've already achieved some of the basic things that you need to. I always said, though, from the beginning that, yes, of course, I measured, you know, I did financial forecasts and I measured the amount of, you know, the revenue and the profit. But I always said that's just a measure is one measure of success for a business. It's not the reason that I do what I do. Um, I think, and I'm guilty of this too, because I travel like crazy and I, you know, I work really hard that we don't measure things like, am I still enjoying what I'm doing? Am I, am I you know, is, is every part of what I do, does it make me happy? Or are there some things that I compromise on because I need to pay the bills? Is this taking me away from my family too much? We don't, tend to measure those things until they become a problem. Mm. So I think use metrics. And obviously, if you're running a business, use financial metrics, but don't forget to use other metrics as well, because otherwise you'll just become a slave to the financial metrics. Ah, I love that. Um, let's come back to the self-care piece. Um, let's go into, you know, I, I think we've in a lot of ways kind of unintentionally already covered a lot of the mechanisms of neuroplasticity about learning, perfecting mm. and retraining. You know, I think you kind of, you know, pretty much covered all of those. But then you mm. go into this whole idea of a whole brain approach, right? Emotional intelligence, physicality and interoception, gut instinct and intuition, motivation, logic and creativity. Uh, talk to me about the, the role that those play in our ability to manifesting what it is that we want. Well, I think everything really, because they're, you know, I brought those as the fundamentals in terms of the ways that we think and make decisions, and they relate to certain systems and pathways in the brain. Um, and I've particularly put them in the order that I put them in, because as I said earlier, um, and you know, you mentioned from the book that we've, we've just overplayed logic so massively and downplayed things like emotion and intuition. So, but, but to be able to unleash the full power of your brain, you need to pay attention to all of those six ways of thinking, which are mastering your emotions, the brain-body connection, trusting your intuition, making good decisions, staying motivated and resilient, and creating the life that you want. Um, it's not about being equally good at everything, but it is about playing to your strengths and feeling comfortable enough with the other ways of thinking that you can bring them in as required. And Often for the reasons that you and I discussed earlier, like you were told that you had no athletic ability, that can be a reason that we block off the pathway that's about the brain-body connection. Or for me, being told that I wasn't creative, that can be a reason that I, I don't you know, focus on that pathway at all and I make you know, all of my decisions more logically or intuitively. Um, so in terms of if we go back to the, the way that you think determines your life and that you can use your brain power to manifest the real world outcomes that you want, then, you know, your, your brain is almost like a well-oiled machine that you want firing on all cylinders. And so 
paying attention to, okay, where are my strengths? And I'm really going to play to those. Where are areas I would benefit from developing, um, let's say, emotional mastery or motivation? And what's something that I don't do? And maybe either looking at like, what's the reason that you don't do it? Like you and I both identified one thing that we weren't really, you know, thinking of as strength. Um, And it's not even always about getting all of that brain power yourself, but sometimes you might have a really intuitive friend. And so you might go to them to help you with that if that's a pathway that that you don't really use. But, But if you're not using all of them, then you're not giving yourself the best chance to create the business that you want, to have the marriage that you want, to have the physique and sporting ability that you want. So it's it's almost like it's it's not good enough for you to not use all of your brain power. Mm-hmm. And because of neuroplasticity, we can all do all of those things. It's just that we tend to default to our the things that we find easiest to do. So in the section on emotion, I think there was one quote in particular that really stood out to me. You said the emotional profile of your family will have a big impact on how you manage and express your emotions. Now, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if this is all Indian moms. Like I'm beginning to kind of think it is, but my mom worries um, so much that pretty much my directive anytime I go on a surf or snowboard trip is a text message every day letting us know that you didn't die. And I, I realized that that's just parents. Like even now, they're like, text us when you get wherever you are. And I realized we started doing that to them after a certain point. We're like, text us. When, yeah. you know, as they got older, we're like, please send us a text and let us know that you made it home. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it was kind of funny to see that. But having you know grown up maybe around anxious parents or parents who you know make you feel stressed out, is it possible to overcome that given the impact that they've had on your emotional profile? And if so, how? See, this is a very, very interesting field because as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, chances are that we both have parents, we're, you know, we're similar age. We both have parents that um, went through some trauma um, during the partition of India. And so it's not just about what they were like bringing us up, but it's also about the epigenetic effect of trauma that they, they may have experienced in their life. So we know, for example, that... Um, into the third generation, survivors of the Holocaust, not just the children, but the grandchildren have altered stress responses. Um, Now, this isn't always a bad thing. So sometimes if you've experienced a certain amount of trauma, it can actually make you more resilient. So, you know, as I said, we switch on and off certain gene expression. But often if you've experienced trauma, then it does make you a very anxious person and that has an effect on your children. So we know that um, mummy rats who are pregnant, if they are exposed to a smell like peppermint and given a mild electric shock at the same time, then if you expose them to peppermint, they have a stress response because they're expecting an electric shock. And when the baby rats are born, even though they've never received an electric shock themselves, if you expose them to the smell of peppermint, they have a stress response. So there's both biological and psychological reasons that anxious parents can have an effect on you. And so if, you know, when I was a, when I was a, a medical student and we did pediatrics, we were taught the quadrant of um, intelligence and anxiety in parents. So basically, you can have an intelligent, non-anxious parent or an intelligent, anxious parent or a less intelligent, anxious parent and a less intelligent, less anxious parent. And actually it's better to be less anxious than it matters how intelligent your parents are in terms of the neural development of the child. Um, Which, you know, I think raises a lot of 
it's certainly not meant to raise any guilt, but it raises a lot of questions in terms of what you expose your children to, um, how you learn to manage your emotions so that that's not passed on to your children, um, how you teach your children to you know, do mindfulness and manage their own emotions. Um, I think we just know so much more about it now than we did before that I feel that you and I, you know, as we go into parenthood, we'll be much better equipped to deal with our own emotions, teach our children to deal with theirs and decide what we um, show them in terms of our own emotions. Mm, wow. So in the next section, you get into this whole idea of uh, physicality and interception, and you say that energy is essential to maintain our ability to stay self-aware and manage our emotions, keep motivated when we're tired and distracted, rely on our intuition and when we don't know who to trust, bring out of the box thinking into our life when we're in a rut and decide to stick to our life goals when the going gets tough. And when I look at this, the thing that I, I've said a handful of times, you know, when people have interviewed me is I don't think it's a coincidence that my surfing journey and my journey of being a writer are almost parallel to the day. It's almost like every outcome in my professional life changed for the better by becoming a surfer, mm. which you know, mm. at the time, my mom was like, you're a beach bum who doesn't seem interested in a job anymore. Uh, because it was a great way to pass the time when I didn't have a job after business school because it takes up a shitload of time and it doesn't cost any money. So I say it's the perfect hobby for an unemployed person. Uh, yeah. But it also made me incredibly happy during a time when I should, like, you know, most people wouldn't have been. So, um, like, what is happening there? Like, why is it that, you know, when people do things like these action sports, like, I can tell you, I don't surf or snowboard for the exercise. Those are just convenient fringe mm. benefits. Mm -hmm. um, I do it for the flow. Totally. I, I'm so with you on that. I I had an insight into that myself. I think because you and I, for all sorts of reasons, but, you know, the cultural thing, the parental expectation, the education, we're very much in our heads. And, you know, so are probably most of your listeners and, and all the people that I work with. And so, and we're used to solving problems. We're used to dealing with mental challenges, but we haven't been so well trained at dealing with physical challenges. And I remember um, I did ski um, as a child, but then I didn't ski for over a decade in, when I was in my first marriage. And like, so I came back to it as an adult. And I remember falling, sit, well, not falling, but just sitting down on the side of a black run after a few falls and thinking, you know, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I'm cold. I'm not enjoying this anymore. And the people that were with me saying like, you know, get up, get up, come on, we need to go. And thinking, if I get up now, like the angle that I'm on, I'm just going to hurtle to my death. But then after a while thinking that I can't exactly sit here forever. <laughs> um, and then just having this massive insight that this is what I demand of my coaching clients. I ask them to make these huge changes, take risks, learn new things, push themselves out of their comfort zone. And I don't accept anything less than the best. And it really hit me that, you know, physical, the physical and mental analogy is such a good one. So I think for you that it's been a way of exploring some territories in your mind that maybe would be too confronting to do by going to psychotherapy or, you know, having coaching. Yeah. And maybe wouldn't actually get you to the same point necessarily that you've used your body, which I also think was a pathway that you were a bit cut off from because you were told you didn't have athletic ability, 
to basically do therapy for yourself. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's uh, let's get into this idea of intuition. I think there was one section about trusting your gut that really struck me. Um, you said the gut isn't a second brain. It houses the enteric nervous system, which is one of the main divisions of the body's autonomic nervous system, which is one of the main divisions of the body's. Um, uh, and it works unconsciously in much the same way you breathe and your heart beats with any in- intervention from your conscious mm-hmm. brain. And I think the reason that really struck me was because I had a really, really bad case of IBS when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was actually the main reason I ended up sticking to surfing, uh, because I think it it really helped with that. And, you know, the other thing you said is that a staggering 90% of the serotonin that works primarily in your brain is produced in the gut. So I remembered that story from, you know, the first time I caught a wave, but also something Danielle Laporte wrote in one of her books where she said she had this story about a Japanese business executive. Anytime he made a decision, he would do it after a meal. And if the meal went down, okay, it would be a yes. If it didn't, the answer would be no. Oh, wow. I've never heard that before. I love that. So with that in mind, uh, one, can we, can we, you know, like basically improve the condition of the gut to have better, um, you know, serotonin levels? And if so, how? Well, so this is another very um, emerging and interesting field, which is about the gut microbiome. And so when I was writing the book, I wanted to write a chapter on taking the physical care of your gut. And I wanted to write a chapter on intuition. And then I had this crazy idea to put them into one chapter. And I'm so glad that I did, because actually the research has really gone in that direction to show how connected they are. So basically, if your gut is not in good physical condition, then that gut-brain interaction doesn't work as well. And your access to your intuition will actually be clouded. Um, and so we've known for a long time about the neural connection between the gut and the, the limbic system, the, which is the intuitive part of the brain. But now we know that there's actually a three-way transmission between the gut neurons, the limbic brain, and the gut micro, the, the bacteria in your gut. So there's that nerve connection, and then the gut bacteria separately signal to the neurons in your gut and to your brain through cytokine transmission, which is release of chemicals into the bloodstream. And so for all sorts of reasons in the modern world, antibiotic use, stress, alcohol, we've uh, reduced the diversity of our gut bacteria. So I can't remember the exact number offhand, but compared to when we lived in the cave, we have like, you know, X hundreds of times of less diversity of gut bacteria than we used to. Um, so basically keeping so the simplest thing is to take a good quality probiotic for a month um, and try to replenish your gut bacteria by eating a varied diet with fermented foods and the prebiotic type foods Um, and then to you know avoid stress alcohol and antibiotics and then really work on honing your intuition through journaling so yeah, there's again, it's a growing field, but there's some really exciting research about physical gut health and the brain. And actually, it's the the research takes it even further to the communication or the connection between your bone marrow, your immune system cells, and your gut microbiome. Um, so you know, our immunity, our our brain health, and everything that comes from that, which is our, you know our ability to manage our emotions, access our intuition, everything else. 
are intimately connected. We don't know enough about it yet, but it's a really, really exciting field. And so especially if you've had IBS, I would definitely focus on, you know, doing some kind of cleanse and then using probiotics and, you know, doing some food exclusion and things like that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Let's talk about motivation. Uh, I think that this is is fascinating to me. You know, you say that having a strong sense of purpose correlates with well-being. It ensures we're goal-directed, motivated by a desire for a particular outcome that gives us the tenacity to keep going. 
it, you know, it, it's funny because I've worked in sales jobs at software companies where I got fired all the time. And yet I <laughs> persisted with virtually no external reward for what I've done here at Unmistakable Creative for more than like almost a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder, you know, what is that about? Like, is it purpose that leads to that? Like, are we much more, and is it a lack of purpose that leads to such poor performance in the working environment? Yeah, well, you mentioned that you you ski and uh, sorry that you surf and snowboard for for flow yeah. rather than for physical exercise. So when we're aligned in terms of our meaning and purpose, basically when we're in integrity, when we and, and we didn't go into it too much, but you mentioned harmony um, mm-hmm. when you mentioned that Netflix movie, and I also write about harmony, which is yeah. that you must be in internal harmony. So you know all of this. I really wanted to do this, but I did that for the money. That's not harmony. Um, and then equally, you know, if you're doing something that's great for you, but it's like not great, you know, but you're using child labor or something, then that's not harmony either. Um, you know, and subtler versions of the same thing. So there needs to be that external harmony, but also for us, and people call it head, heart and gut. I prefer to be a bit more scientific and say physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, that those things all need to be in some sort of alignment. Um, but even if you use the example of the brain, the gut neurons, um, you know, that needs to be in alignment. And so, so often logic tells us one thing, but intuition tells us another. Mm-hmm. And because of all the things that we talked about previously, um, it's really important to listen to your intuition because that's coming from the core of you. Whereas logic, you know, and, and we've, I know that we've, you know, we've sort of, bullied about this a little bit but you know logic is often very driven by external expectation Uh and by motivation that's not you know deeply purpose led um you know and i love the japanese concept that i mentioned in the book ikigai which is your reason for waking up in the morning you know your your why i do what i do Uh So it's funny, right? We're talking about perspective and you mentioned logic. And I noticed the only part of the book that I actually don't have any other notes from other than the header was because I knew I was going to have this conversation is logic, which is a strange coincidence given our conversation. Well, I mean, it's to to me, it's not a coincidence because what I always see, you know, in my teaching at MIT Sloan and with, you know, the clients that I coach is that everybody's more than good enough at logic. Mm -hmm. If you went to school, high school, even if you didn't go to university, but, you know, especially if you went to university and you've, um, you know, been on a sort of typical traditional career path, then you are very, very logical. And there are all these other amazing pathways in your brain that you could be just as good at. And, and that's why I focus on those things. And so, you know, I think that chapter is probably one of the thinnest chapters in the book as well. <laughs> that's why I don't have much, any notes from it. From yeah, that. exactly. So let's talk about perspective. I, I really appreciated what you said about this. You said everyone is tested by challenging experiences such as bereavement, heartbreak, or financial difficulties. This is all part of the rhythm of life. One question I often ask myself is how much will this matter in five years? Perspective is mm. about relativity and time as well as compared to the experience of others. And I think for many of us, we can look at that and we can understand this intellectually, but to put it into practice emotionally is far more challenging. And I wonder what is the key to developing that capacity um, when you find yourself in these situations? Yeah, I think, again, that's a little bit of a tricky one to relate. But I think for me, it started because I was a medical doctor. And so, you know, I've literally dealt with things where where you ask the question, will this matter in five years' time? It could be the difference between someone being dead or alive. And so luckily, I've always had this perspective that 
you know, if it's not actual physical life or death, then it's not that bad. And there might be things that you can do about it and a lot can change in, in five years time or even, you know, five days or five weeks. So I think, I guess I'm, you know, very privileged that I've had that perspective, but I would say that because we get so caught up in our own emotions that even when I do an exercise with someone like they say like this terrible thing, you know, I'm going through this terrible situation and I can't cope with it. I say things like, well, what would you advise your sister if your sister was in that situation? Because that's still someone that you really care about, but you have one level of separation from being in the situation yourself. Um, and, you know, I, I do also like that question, like, how much will this matter in five years time? Because you can take out about 50% of the things that people are worrying about with that question. Um, of course there are some things that will matter in five years time. Um, and you know, I mean, I think a really obvious one with my female friends and the, the female readership of the book is, is something like fertility. Um, you know, that could really matter in five years time. Um, so, so it become, it comes back to being much more about how you cope with the thing than the thing itself. And that's really, you know, a lot of what the book's about. Um, so I think, you know, things like the master key system and Think and Grow Rich, what they're really about is you having mastery over yourself and becoming resilient. It's not about actually getting everything that you want in your in your life or that you think you want now, because you may not want them in five years time. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny you say that because uh, I definitely am not living the life that I wanted when I was 25 or when I was 30. I think if the 25 year old version of me saw how this had all turned out, they'd be like, what you traded in our, you know, shot at the corporate office for a wetsuit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so could your, you know, yourself in your fifties or sixties could say something very similar or something very different. You just don't know. So, you know, that really also brings us to what we hear a lot about, which is being present, being in the moment, kind of, you know, enjoying the now and not worrying too much about the past or the future. Uh So let's talk about creativity and raised awareness. I mean, obviously it would be weird for us not to address what you've written about creativity, given the the title of the podcast itself. Mm. Uh, You say, once we give ourselves permission to open up and play with lots of potential ideas and possibilities, creativity rewards us, enabling us to spot opportunities in unlikely places It means we can sense when to take a chance and when to question or pursue something. It helps us hone a strong intuition, giving us the flexibility to recognize possibilities that might bypass us otherwise. I think for me, when I think about the creative capacity I've developed, it's largely been because of exposure to so many ideas. You know, like I always jokingly say, I don't really know anything. I'm just a, you know, accumulation of people's ideas, people who are much smarter than I am, uh, And so I always describe it as, yeah, I'm taking other people's uh, ingredients, but coming up with my own recipes. But, you know, I I wonder one, you know, obviously, I think we all know, you know, creating anything is sort of the law of attraction at work. Um, What is your research shown about this? And what happens to this as we get older? Like, why is it that we see sort of a a more I I know school is partially to blame for this, because I remember even in the Naval Ravikant podcast, um, he said, you know, uh, the education system, unfortunately, uh, rewards, uh, replaces curiosity and creativity with compliance. Um, Mm. So I guess really, the question is, how do you get back to this? Yeah, I think it starts with a bit of a redefinition of what creativity is. So I think, you know, one of the reasons that I struggled with this is that 
I held on to the definition of creativity being about um, art or being in, you know, industries like film or dance or, you know, sort of writing novels or whatever. And so I think the more that we understand that that's not what creativity is, that helps. Um, and the, you know, that, so that the redefinition that I've tried to put forward is that it's, it's about thinking differently. It's about thinking out of the box. It's about imagining a different reality or the future and applying, you know, either things that you know to a different reality or, 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 you know, taking completely new and different thinking into your current reality. So it's more, it's much more about that. Um, curiosity and playfulness are huge parts of it so we don't really usually allow ourselves time to do that so I think you know when you've been surfing and you're in flow you've allowed yourself more time than the average person to 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 think more creatively and therefore be more innovative um yeah so you know I've sort of how I've put it in the book is that you've created your life so far. You've created your home. You may have created some children. You can create a welcoming atmosphere when people come to your house. And so to, to focus on place, you know, areas that you have been creative rather than to think that that gets squeezed out of you by school and your job and, um, and to make time for it, you know, like things like singing. It's always, it's always sort of, oh, no, I can't sing. Well, actually, it doesn't matter if you're in tune or, or you're very, whether you're very good at it or not. Actually, just singing is, you can just do it for the pleasure for yourself. And, you know, there are, we know that there are benefits for people who express themselves in that way. So I think the creativity is about that expressive outlet for you, whatever it is. So your surfing is creative, but not everybody would see it that way. So let's talk about the idea of raised awareness. You know, so the more we experience something, the more we lay down pathways for that connection in our brains through neuroplasticity and increased synapses. And you basically define it, you know, uh, you basically break raised awareness down into these areas, roles, secrets, beliefs, values, and boundaries. Can you expand on those and, and what they mean and, and how they play a role? Um, so raised awareness is basically about taking from non-conscious or subconscious to conscious what's driving your behavior or what has led you to be in the position that you're in today. And so um, this also relates back a little bit to what you're asking about with the sort of like, you know, the emotional style in your family. Yeah. So things like roles and boundaries and values are th generally things that are instilled in you by your family. And so we both talked about being the first, gen you know, the first child of, of um, Indian immigrant parents, and that would have put, you know, put us into a certain role. Um, and the cultural heritage would have given us certain values. Um, but then, you know, I, I think I sort of said that the difference between you and I, perhaps because of gender, was that boundaries may have been different for us. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I realized I didn't have boundaries based on growing up with the mother that I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, having very loose boundaries makes you a certain type of person later in life, whereas if you have very, very strict boundaries and, you know, either punishment or humiliation if you cross those boundaries or you have fear of even going close to that boundary, that makes you a very different kind of person. So it's really about, it's, you know, the premise of the book isn't about, it's mostly about being forward looking. It's not about 
kind of, you know, trying to do therapy on yourself, but there has to be some looking at what's created the individual that you are today. And I find that looking at those, um, you know, like what secrets were kept in your family. So it's, um, you know, the roles, the boundaries, the values and secrets and a few other things that they can be really important things. So a big one that I hear people talk about is, oh, we didn't talk about money in our family. And but funnily enough, these people often end up being financial advisors or bankers. So it's, you know, it's interesting that that may have driven people into a certain career, but it's so unconscious that the more we can raise our awareness of why we've chosen certain things, the more that we can release sometimes terrible amounts of stress. We can stop fighting a fight that we don't need to fight anymore. Um, And we can make, you know, new decisions about what we really want to be doing and how we want to be living and how we want to be feeling as a human. Wow. Well, I want to bring this full circle uh, with the section on self-care because I think that you you dedicated an, an important part of it. And I think in a lot of ways, I in, I see it in myself often. I see it in our culture that this is, I think, one of the areas um, that is under threat because we're so goal-driven. Like if you go to uh, Medium any day, and I know that I contribute to this, it's, you know, like productivity hack after productivity hack. It's, you know, people eating soylent to avoid you know, spending time eating, which I think is ridiculous because we're Indian and every, everything oh. we do centers around food. Uh, food yeah. uh, but, you know, I, I think that you, you basically broke it down into uh, a couple of components, rest, fuel, and hydration. And it was funny because I was reading the hydration thing. It's like, if you notice you're thirsty or your, your lips are, or you have dry lips, you're way more than 3% dehydrated. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I'm like, I need to go get water right after this. Um, but you, yeah, see, that's the, di- that, that's the difference between men and women. I got a large, you know, vessel of water uh-huh. to bring with me to the podcast to make sure that I would drink <laughs> all the way throughout. Hey, I had to move from my spot where I'm normally at. So I normally would have, yeah, that's true. So, yeah. But no, I hear you. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you're actually, actually right. If we did a, a large statistical sample, that would probably be the case. I do see that, but you know, regardless of that, I always say to people, you'd never drive your car without topping up the oil and the water Mm -hmm. but you come to work having maybe skipped breakfast not drunk any water for over eight hours grabbed a coffee on the way and expect your brain to function at its best it's just not it it doesn't work like that you need to lubricate the chemical and electrical messages that pass between the neurons and that's why you know I mean I've had like stand-up arguments with some of my CEO clients because I can see that they're dehydrated Uh and I literally once said to one of them you're asking me to help you lead a massive organization through a digital transformation. But I know that you can't think as well as you could because you haven't drunk enough water. Wow. Um, and, you know, I got this guy to do a food and drink diary and he was drinking coffee and like diet cola and wine and beer, but, but no water. And telling me, oh, I can't drink as much water as you say I should because I'll be in the bathroom all day. But actually, he was drinking a lot of other liquids. So I, I won that argument in the end. <laughs> it sounds like I'd, I don't want to have that argument with you because I think I would probably, no. I, I would probably <laughs> like I'm thinking about just the last 24 hours. I'm like, yeah, I'd lose that argument with you too. Yeah. Um, but it's such a small thing that you can do to improve your, you know, the the okay, so let's, functioning of your brain. Let's talk, so in terms of, you know, I wake up at like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. every day because that's like prime creative time for me. 
Um, and of course, I drink coffee, but I also make a point to grab a big thing of water. So I, I'm curious, like, is there a certain amount of water? Are there specifics? Like what, how would you suggest we start the day when it comes to, to hydration? I mean, I take a glass of water to bed with me and drink it first thing in the morning because I know, you know, by then that I haven't drunk anything for seven or eight yeah. hours. Um, so the sort of the numbers are half a liter of water for every 30 pounds of your body weight per day, um, which, you know, for a small woman like me is about one and a half liters for, you know, for some men, it's two or three liters. Funnily enough, when I was in L.A., when you and I first wrote to each other, I was staying with um, a really old school friend. And he loves my book and he's bought it for so many people. But he said, the only thing I didn't agree with is that I'm apparently supposed to be drinking three liters of water a day. And he was like, that's way too much. But then I said, well, you know, how much are you drinking? It's probably not not enough. Like maybe three liters is too yeah. much. But um, my guess is that you're drinking a lot less than you, you could be, which... Yeah, is a good guess because it's usually correct for most people. Well, I noticed that it, it, you know uh, my friend Matt and I moved to Boulder recently, and the climate is drier there because you're up with elevation. And we both mm. immediately noticed. And I was like, "Listen, man, I'm like my lips are chapped every day. Is that happening to you?" He said, "Yes." Mm. I was like, "Okay, good." I was like, "I wanted to make sure I wasn't losing my mind," but I realized like there, you know, you go out to a bar and have three or four drinks. It's a whole different story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, things like change of altitude or change of humidity or, you know, weather makes that a bit more obvious. But um, and, you know, things like alcohol and caffeine that actually are diuretics that drain more water from your system than the liquid that they put in. Um, so all I'm suggesting with those the self-care categories, which are rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate and simplify, is to do micro tweaks in each of those areas. So. Things like, you know, drink an extra glass of water per day, go to bed half an hour earlier, walk a thousand more steps a day more than you usually do. Just start with really small things like that. And then you actually start to feel better. I mean, for you, if the only thing you did in the next month was drink enough water mm. every day, like the right amount, you would feel different. Um, and then if you think about adding in five or 10 of these micro tweaks, just, you know, the benefits that you can unleash your brain power from that kind of self-care is really why I talk about self-care. I am going to track, yeah, you know, I will experiment with it and track it and send you the results. <laughs> okay. Uh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to I'll make that. myself a human guinea pig for all the things you've talked about. Let's talk about food um, briefly. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I always, I, I, I've written a, a little bit about food in my various books on creativity. It was like, I'm Indian. Our entire diet is carbs. Like there's no getting around it. You know, not that I eat that way, but if I'm at home, I know that, you know, being <clears throat> like gluten-free, I have a friend who's gluten-free. He comes over and my mom's like, I'm really sorry, but I don't know what to make this guy. Like tell him to go get something. Uh, <clears throat> so let, let's talk specifically about diet because I think that our awareness about, you know, food has changed substantially over the last two decades. Hmm. Um, so just for the record, my husband is gluten-free and we went to India two years ago and I was amazed by how good they wow. were. Um, so, and there's actually a book that you should buy for your parents and read yourself called the South Asian health solution. Okay. It's by a, a doctor who works in Silicon Valley and it is life changing. Yeah. Um, so one of my hedge fund clients who's, who's of Indian origin gave me that book and I, absolutely love it and so you know we need to be teaching our parents as well that this carb heavy diet is so bad yeah. for us um so um yeah so for, from a nutrition point of view just quite generally 
um, you know, I, I tend to eat in a brain first kind of way. So most of us eat because we're hungry or we, you know, we're training for a particular physical activity or we want to lose weight. But no one really thinks, what should I eat today so I can be the best manager or leader? What can, what should I eat today so I can be creative? What should I eat so I can make good decisions? But the brain, which is pretty tiny, like four or five pounds, uses up 25 to 30% of what we eat. So I just eat really nutrition dense, you know, a lot of dark skinned foods like blueberries and black beans, um, because the darker the skin, the more nutrients there are. Um, Lots of green leafy vegetables, nuts and seeds for the magnesium and the other micronutrients. And then if you do eat um, meat and fish, then the oily fish, you know, some lean meat for the protein, eggs, avocado, all the good um, oils and fats, like actually ghee and coconut oil, olive oil. Um, so yeah, I eat a lot of the good fats. I try to eat, you know, as much protein as I can, but I don't eat meat. Um, and I kind of prefer being vegetarian. So that's sometimes a bit tricky. And I really massively try to minimize the carbs. I don't eat any refined carbs. Um, it is hard, I think, not to eat rice if you're Indian. Yeah. It's just like a literally like a, a lifelong love affair with a certain food group. But, um, you know, I do, because my husband's gluten-free, we don't really have um, any gluten in the house. So that helps to have just more variety. Um, and, you know, there is some evidence that coconut oil boosts your brain power. Um, but if you're not from a culture like us, so if, if your roots ethnically are not from a place where coconuts are a natural um, tree, then coconut oil can actually be quite bad for your gut microbiome. So it's better to get the pure um, MCT oil, which is medium tra- medium chain triglycerides. And um, obviously, you know, Bulletproof has been um, a big yeah, thing in the States and the UK. The Bulletproof. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, I was actually on the um, Dave's podcast and um, so I'm a big fan of MCT oil, but I, you know, feel that I can tolerate coconut oil, but still MCT oil is better. Yeah. Um, and then, so the level one of the game is to eat regularly because your brain can't store, store, um, the resources for later. But if you sleep well, exercise, eat quite healthily, drink enough water, etc then you can do what's called time-restricted eating. So for instance, I only eat between 12 noon and 8 p.m. So I'm essentially fasting for 16 hours overnight. Even if you did 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., that is uh, considered a fast. So again, in um, Indian cultures, um, fasting is is often part of it. So that can be something that you know people who eat too many carbs can try mm-hmm. to do. And then if you want to take it really to the, the next level, then um, intermittent fasting, which is where two non-consecutive days of the week, you reduce your calorie intake to 500 calories for a woman and 600 calories for a man. Um, And like I said, I tried that a few years ago. And for the first couple of weeks, you are really aware of being hungry and it's very difficult to like stay within the 500, but you get used to it really quickly. Um, And it has such a strong impact on all that very unhealthy visceral fat that sits around our organs in our abdomen. Um, so actually particularly for South Asian people, but actually, you know, for anyone, um, who has particularly who has visceral fat, it's a really healthy practice and it also has brain benefits. Mm. Wow. 
So you brought up Bulletproof and, uh, you know, the, you know, brain benefits of Bulletproof coffee. And, and, you know, I think it was funny because, you know, I think Dave has really kind of um, bred this sort of culture of biohackers. And I know, I remember specifically underlining this, I don't have the quote, but you wrote about modafinil inside of the book about how it actually just makes you more alert. So I, I wonder, you know, as a neuroscientist, like what is your perspective on this whole biohacker culture? Um, you know, and then you look at things, you know, like microdosing, things that Stephen Kotler and uh, Jamie Wheel wrote about stealing fire, right? Microdosing mushrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like where is this all kind of an unknown? Because the other thing I, I remember asking Adam Ghazali, who's a neuroscientist as well at UCSF about attention. And the the consensus on modafinil has always been, I feel like I haven't gotten a straight answer, but I saw what you wrote about it. So I wanted to ask you about it, but mm -hmm. you know, not just modafinil, but the sort of biohacking microdosing culture in general. Yeah. Yeah. So so interestingly, Dave's wife and I both have our MCT oil in matcha green tea, uh -huh. which has, you know, hundreds of antioxidants and nutrients in it that are really good for your brain. So I would say that on the spectrum of keeping things as natural as possible to, you know, basically biohacking with every drug that's available out there, I would say I'm more on the natural side yeah. of it. But as a neuropharmacologist, obviously, I have to keep an eye on where this research is going. And at the moment, um, I'm not really comfortable with people using drugs that are designed for a certain disease to try to improve their brain power. And we do, you know, so I'll give you a definitive answer. Something like modafinil increases wakefulness, but it does not boost your brain power. And so the same friend, the professor of neuroscience that asked me about finding husband number yeah. two, said to me, it's a bit like Viagra. It will improve your one-off performance, but it won't save your marriage. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and I love that analogy. So, and you know, there are lots of, to be honest, if you're not eating a good diet in the first yeah. place, then it's like you're putting, you know, a cherry on the icing where you don't really have a cake. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, that, that nutrition dense diet uh -huh. is something that I don't think most people are doing already. And then, you know, the other things that we've yeah. spoken about then if you want to add in some things like matcha green tea, like coconut oil, like, you know, blueberries, but you really have to eat like 25 to get the sort of cognitive benefits. Then I think, you know, there is a lovely growing field of brain um, smart kind of multivitamins, which are still all based on totally natural things that just, you know, give you that extra nutrition that you might not be yeah. getting through diet alone. And then there's things like microdosing and using these, you know, drugs that promote wakefulness, which, you know, it's the it's the direction that things are going in. So to be honest, if everybody else was doing it, I, you know, it's a little bit like that drug limitless. Right. I wouldn't want to be the only person that's not taking <laughs> it, but I would. I don't want to be well, one of the first people I mean, that tries I, it. Know, because there's no way I would be asking this question if I didn't have experience with it. So like, you know, I was like, oh wow, mm. like I remember when I was studying for the GMAT, it was. Help, incredibly helpful because I'd come home from work. I think more than anything, though, it was the wakefulness part. I was able to stay up, you yeah, know, more than anything else. It, you know, and uh, it, it was funny because even when I, I, you know, I went to Stephen Kotler's Zero to Dangerous seminar and we were talking about flow, and of course, naturally, modafinil came up. And he said, "Look," he said, "He said we know for sure that um, the antidepressants, right, like the sort of SSRIs, he's like those are deterrents of flow." And I noticed the first that was one of the first things I noticed when I took antidepressants was that when I would catch a wave in the water the high had diminished significantly from what it used to be. 
And that was one of the big reasons I was like, okay, you know what? Like that was, you know, and then I managed to kick them. And it was strange because I managed to kick them not through a doctor, but gradually weaning myself off. And then I was on a surf trip in India and I was so tired at the end of every day, I forgot to take them. And then I just stopped taking them. Mm. And actually what people forget about that movie Limitless is that in the end, he weans himself yeah. off the drug, but finds that he has the power in his own brain to do all of those things. So I was actually going to say to you that, you know, my preference at the moment is to do flotation uh -huh. tank um, in terms of, so not just like the short-term um, the short-term benefits, but the benefits that people talk about in terms of things like massive insights and, you know, raised mm. awareness. Um, I'm just preferring to keep it as natural as possible yeah. at the moment, but I'm not saying I wouldn't do it because <laughs> well, this has been just <laughs> mind bogglingly cool. I feel like I could talk to you for like three or four hours. Um, and I have a feeling our listeners are going to want to hear more from you. Uh, so I want to bring us full circle and uh, finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think I really think it's being very comfortable in your own skin. So that authenticity, we all tap into that and we resonate with it and it makes us feel so good. And so partly it's going against the grain but I think it's having the confidence to go against the grain because you're so comfortable in your own skin to me that's the thing that really makes you know a, a strong impact and impression and, and lingers and that's what I would consider unmistakable amazing well um I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us to share your story your wisdom and your insights with our listeners where can people find out more about you um, your work as well as um, the book Thank you. So the book, um, The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain is available um, at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and you know, other independent booksellers across the US um, and Amazon everywhere. Um, I am most active on Instagram, Dr. Tara Swart, so D-R Tara Swart, but I'm also on Twitter um, and my website is taraswart.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.